Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. It's April the 15th, 2022, and things seem to be getting even more real, if that's the right word, in Ukraine. Um, uh, Russia, according to the BBC today, this morning, hit a Kiev missile plant after losing its supposedly iconic warship. Um, Russia is threatening more strikes against Kiev after this loss of the warship. Uh, Russia is also today, according to the New York Times, warned America to stop sending arms to Ukraine. If it doesn't, there will be quote-unquote, unpredictable consequences. So it's beginning to seem time that America needs to get real. And that indeed was the title of a really interesting piece um, earlier this week uh, by my guest today, Carl, uh, Charles Kupchan uh, in the New York Times. Charles has been on the show before. Putin's war in Ukraine is a watershed time for America to get real. Charles is joining us from Philadelphia. Charles, um, your Times piece uh, talks about America getting real. Um, and you are, above all else, a foreign policy thinker focused on reality. What exactly does that mean? Or what did you mean by it in your, in your Times piece? Well, the piece that really is about putting the war in Ukraine in the context of the tension between idealism and realism that has really run through American history since the, the very beginning. And I think part of what we're seeing here is an American foreign policy that since the end of the Cold War has been very much about spreading American values, about democratization, about spreading the American Republican experiment. And this is something that has been with the country since the founders. Sometimes we call it American exceptionalism. And starting in the 1990s, we began the enlargement of NATO, the enlargement of the EU. We brought Russia into the G7. We brought China into the WTO. And at least initially, it, it worked pretty well. There was a wave of democratization that took place in many quadrants of the world. But in many respects, I think what's happening here is America's ideals are running headlong into Russian tanks because the Russians have grown in increasingly uncomfortable with the enlargement of NATO, the idea that NATO is bringing to bear its aggregate military strength closer and closer to Russia's borders. Uh, we were thinking about this as a benign process of spreading democracy. They saw this as NATO coming in their direction in a way that made them very uncomfortable. And so in many respects, I think we're seeing a, a, a clash but that is geopolitical in nature, but also ideological in nature. And I do think that it is going to send the world backwards toward power politics, toward realpolitik. And as a consequence, the United States will need to respond in kind to embrace a more traditional practice of realpolitik and scale back its ideological ambition. That's the world we're now heading toward. 
As I said, Charles, you were on the show a couple of years ago, actually about 18 months ago, uh, talking about uh, the book. The book was new at the time, Isolationism, A History of American Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. We titled our conversation, How American Exceptionalism Leads to American Isolationism. Skeptics, perhaps cynics, might suggest that this idea of making the world a better place, of building NATO and all these other international organizations are just a front for American dominance. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, I'm I'm actually a believer in American exceptionalism, guilty as charged, uh, if American exceptionalism means that the United States does have a mission to make the world a better place, a more just place, a more peaceful place. And I think that on balance, the U.S. has succeeded in that task. I think it, through example, on occasion by force, has made the world a more decent place, a more just place. But this belief in exceptionalism is also dangerous because it leads to overreach it gives us moral cover to do things that in the end of the day don't lead to positive outcomes. And I'll just give you a few examples. Manifest destiny. It was the narrative, the ideological justification for westward expansion, and it succeeded. The U.S. got to its goal of the Pacific coast by the middle of the 19th century and began consolidating a Republican Democratic Union. But Manifest Destiny was also moral cover for trampling on Native Americans and launching a war of choice against Mexico in which we Americans grabbed about half of Mexican territory. Um, Another example, 1898, President McKinley gives a resounding speech in which he says, we need to kick colonial Spain out of Cuba in the name of humanity, to defeat the Spanish colonies, to free the people of Cuba. What happens? America turns into an imperial power. We wrest control of Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and other Spanish possessions. We then trigger an insurgency in the Philippines that leads to the death of 4,000 Americans and hundreds of thousands of, of Filipinos. And so sometimes our ideological ambition leads to strategic overreach. And I think to some extent, that's what's happening in Ukraine. I think that the Russians were right to object to Ukraine's membership in NATO. Keep in mind that the United States spent the 19th century pushing France, Britain, Russia, and Spain out of the Western Hemisphere and has jealously guarded the Western Hemisphere from entry by other powers ever since. Doesn't that suggest that great powers generally don't like it when other great powers come into their neighborhood? That may not be consistent with their ideals, but it happens to be consistent with the way the world works. What about NATO, Charles? Um, The Finns and the Swedes apparently now are taking major steps to joining. And as I suggested at the beginning, the Russians have warned uh, that if if these countries join up, then um, they are going to uh they i think they're gonna one warning was that they would um nuclear weapons in the baltic whatever that means what exactly is nato what's the point of it 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 seems to me that uh 
um, its whole focus is anti-Russian. And, and, and why would we have this very, very powerful international alliance against a single country? Well, Andrew, your, your, your question takes us back to the 1990s uh, when the process of NATO enlargement began. I happened to have been serving in Clinton's National Security Council at the time, and I argued vociferously against the enlargement of NATO and in favor of an alternative that we had devised called the Partnership for Peace, which would have generally allowed countries on an ad hoc basis and an informal basis to work with NATO, to democratize, to integrate militarily with NATO, but it would not have formally enlarged the alliance. I lost that debate. And beginning in the 1990s, we began to formally enlarge the alliance. And it did end up looking to the Russians like a hostile act because it pushed Europe's dividing line to the east closer and closer to the Russian border. Now, we did this with benign intent. We did this in order to integrate Poland and the Baltics and Hungary and other countries into the West to reverse the dividing line that was drawn at Yalta at the end of World War II. But an unintended knock-on effect was that we isolated the Russians and made them feel increasingly insecure. And so what, what's happened here is that, yes, we have successfully brought more and more countries into NATO, about 100 million people, all told. But we have also now a new crisis in the relationship with Russia. Not a crisis that's driven uniquely by NATO expansion. Part of this is, is Putin's own paranoia. Part of this is Putin's mystical belief in the cultural ties between Russia and Ukraine. Part of this is the fact that Putin has no game in town except imperial ambition because he never transformed Russia's economy, never really built socioeconomic upward mobility. I think at this point, if I were Finnish or I were Swedish, I would do the same thing. I would say we now want into NATO because Russia has bared its teeth, revealed adventurous military ambition, and we now want to make sure that we have the protection afforded by the defense guarantee that comes with membership. Isn't that they're only going to compound the problem even more? I'm not sure how you get out of this spiraling paranoia. Uh, but, but to what extent then would you situate yourself in the, the Mearsheimer camp, um, Charles, when it comes to making sense of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Now, I'm not suggesting you're justifying it. I don't think Mearsheimer does either. But um, shall we say, quote unquote, realists like yourself seem to be in the minority in American foreign policy establishment and in the moral community generally in America today. Is that fair? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that in the foreign policy establishment that you refer to, the weight of opinion is strongly behind the enlargement of NATO. In the academic community, where I now sit, where John Mearsheimer sits, where other uh, scholars reside, the weight of opinion is against NATO enlargement. And to be honest, I've always kind of pondered why that's the case. And I think part of it has to do with the greater historical knowledge, depth and breadth of those of us who reside in the ivory tower 
one of the lessons that I certainly take away from my reading of history, whether it is the end of World War One, the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the end of World War Two, is try to integrate the defeated adversary into the post-Cold War settlement. Because if you don't do that, you get trouble. In 1815 and in uh, 1945, we did that. We integrated the defeated adversary. In 1919, we didn't. And Germany again emerged as uh, a, 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 an aggressor state. Uh, I think we made some mistakes in the 1990s by proceeding with the construction of a European security order in which Russia was not a stakeholder. So there are a lot of differences between my view and, and Mearsheimer's view. He is a hardcore, dyed-in-the-wool realist. I consider myself a liberal realist. That is to say, someone who thinks that the world operates in the end of the day, according to Realpolitik, but we can on occasion do better. We can on occasion make this world more liberal and more decent. Uh, I do not see the war in Ukraine as the fault of the West. I see this as an unprovoked war of aggression by uh, Russia against Ukraine, but I do think we need to see, understand the broader picture and see the role that American ideology, that Western ideology has played in getting us to this point. Charles, we've had a number of shows with figures who have become almost superstars or celebrities now, critics of Donald Trump, who were involved in foreign policy on the Russia-Ukraine front, Fiona Hill, uh, Marie Yovanovitch, the ex-ambassador to Ukraine. Um, does it concern you that the hysteria over Donald Trump seems to have become mixed up in the hysteria over Putin and the war in Ukraine? Well, I, I, I'd make uh, several observations on this theme. The first is that there's no question that the, the Trump era is the backdrop to, to, the, to the mess that we find ourselves in, in the, in the sense that, that Trump did sell Ukraine out, uh, held back weaponry to try to squeeze the Ukrainians for information. And so the country kind of became an, an, an instrument in American domestic politics. Uh, the Trump wing of the Republican Party has generally been pro-Putin and, and, uh, and against American involvement abroad, neo-isolationist. Classic isolationism. I mean, it, it fits very much into your history and your thesis, doesn't it? Very much so. Kind of libertarian stay out of trouble abroad, tend our own garden. That wing of the Republican Party is quiet for now, but it will be coming back. That would be my prediction, especially as we get closer and closer to the midterms. Gasoline costs five plus dollars a gallon, eggs, four dollars a carton, a loaf of bread, five dollars. You can bet that the Republicans are going to use inflation and the cost of living as a way of pushing back against the Democrats and, in fact, could use the war in Ukraine as a wedge issue in the midterms. The final comment I'd make about this is that there are those out there who are pronouncing the war in Ukraine as the reviving 
spirit of the West. I think it was Frank Fukuyama who said, thank God to brave Ukrainians, it's 1989 all over again. Fukuyama, he's actually going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, but I think he wants the world to to have stopped in 1989. Yeah, well, guess what, Frank? It's not 1989 all over again. A liberal populism is alive and well on both sides of the Atlantic. Viktor Orban was just re-elected in Hungary. The French right, the hard right, is surging. Marine Le Pen came close to Macron in the first round of the French election. Here in the United States, most Republicans still think that Trump won the 2020 election. The idea that somehow Russia's invasion of of Ukraine is going to make all well, I think is quite naive. And that's why I think we have to keep in mind the darkness of the Trump era make sure that even while we work to defeat Russia's aggression in Ukraine, we still keep alive the domestic agenda, investment in working Americans, in healthcare, in infrastructure, in green technology. Otherwise, we're going to be right back in the soup. Uh, There's an interesting piece I saw uh, uh, yesterday on the Hill about hawks making inroads into the Russian debate, hawks being those who really want to take the Russians on uh, in your reality. And you were quoted on this, um, that some of these people have consistently turned up the heat. I had um, Michael Ignatiev on the show, and I, I know you know Michael as well, um, a couple of weeks ago, talking to me from Vienna. Michael doesn't think we, we should take the nuclear option off the table. Does it worry you that the Hawks seem to be dominating the conversation in Washington, D.C.? Does that and does that make you nervous, Charles? Well, I'm more nervous about Putin and his potential use of weapons of mass destruction, whether that means chemical than, uh, or biological or nuclear, than I am about what the United States might do. And I would say, on balance, I'm quite comfortable with the way that President Biden has handled this in the sense that he is giving large amounts of defensive weaponry that are very effective. The Javelin anti-tank weapons, the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. Now we've got S-300 anti-aircraft systems coming in from Slovakia. But Biden has said very early on, we're not sending combat troops into Ukraine. He said no to the no-fly zone. He said no to fighter aircraft. And I think he is being cautious, trying to avoid this war from spilling over. Is he under pressure from the hawks? Yes. Are those hawks, in my mind, being reckless? Yes. But so far, the Biden administration has done a pretty good job of finding the right balance, in my mind, between supporting the Ukrainians and helping them defend themselves versus taking steps that could escalate this into World War III. We did a show um, a couple of months ago with the historian Neil Lanktot on how the U.S. entered World War I. I think there are lots of, uh, lots of relevant lessons we can learn from that. And uh, He wrote a book, um, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future. Um, the Adams in this is Jane Adams, the pacifist who didn't mm-hmm. want America to get involved in the war. But it seems like today... Everything has been turned upside down. I mean, some of the most articulate, erudite, but perhaps aggressive 
voices against Russia, people like Masha Gessin, whereas the pacifists, to, to, to use a word, are people like Tuck, Tucker Carlson. Is this a normal situation in American history where people you would expect to be bellicose aren't and people you would expect to be pacifists are more bellicose? Well, I think that we're in a, a somewhat unusual moment where the Russian invasion of Ukraine has re-legitimated American internationalism. Uh, and right now, if you drive around, I don't know about where you are, Andrew. San Francisco, not, the most uh, San Francisco. liberal place in America. Well, I can tell you that, you know, where I live in Maryland or here in Philadelphia, where I am for the weekend, I see Ukrainian flags. Uh, I hear of of liquor stores that are still pouring out Russian vodka. Uh, they're, they're, the country really has kind of been awakened by this. And I, I think that partly explains why there is this outpouring of let's stand up to Russia. And so the, the neo-isolationist turn that we saw after the so-called forever wars is in my mind in abeyance. It is on hold, but as I said, it's not gone for good. And I think the America first crowd is going to get louder and louder as we get into the midterms and then as we head to the to the presidential elections. We still live in a country in which the political center has been depopulated and in which the traditional internationalists no longer rule the roost. And so my prediction would be, Andrew, and this goes back to the World War I era that you, that you just referenced, is that we're going to see a strange alliance between pacifists, progressives on the left, conservative nationalists and libertarians on the right that favor a more restrained brand of American foreign policy. It's interesting, maybe we talked about this last time, I can't remember, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is pushing for a more restrained foreign policy. Who funded it? George Soros on the left, Charles Koch on the right. There's an example of this strange alliance. What about our attitude to Russia, um, Charles? Uh, I had Joseph Weisberg, one of uh, the most sort of pro-Russian, I guess, American intellectuals around on the show, and he's actually coming on again tomorrow. He wrote a book, seems ages ago, but it was only last year, Russia Upside Down, an Exit Strategy for the Second World War. Do we still need to listen to people like Joe Weisberg uh, in terms of building cultural and political bridges with Russia? I mean, I think we do. Uh, and, you know, I, I took a good bit of flack for the op-ed that you mentioned uh, that I published earlier in the week. And I would say a, a good bit of the flack came from my call to try to forge a balanced approach to Russia and China. Yes, containment. Yes, push back. Yes, make sure there's a stable balance of power. But we live in an interdependent world now. We're not going to tackle climate change or pandemics or nuclear proliferation or cybersecurity and digital governance if we go back to a world that is divided along geopolitical lines. So I think we need to be tough minded with the Russians and the Chinese. I think we need to push back hard against what Russia is doing in Ukraine. I think, in, in fact, the pushback is working. Russia's initial military goals have been uh, 
essentially denied them. Russia is getting hit with unbelievably far-reaching sanctions. But Putin may be there well into the next decade. We're going to have to figure out a way of dealing with the world as it is rather than the world as we would like it to be. And we did a show yesterday also with the University of Chicago scholar on war and peace, Christopher Blackman. Um, I think you're pretty much in his camp, a kind of liberal realism. He has a book, new book out, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. He reminded us, as no doubt you will, that, that there needs to be a peace. There will be a peace to this war, as all wars have pieces. What should American policymakers be thinking in terms of this piece? What should American involvement be in this piece? And what would it look like? Because the last thing, of course, we need is Versailles, or as you suggested, the 1990s, this uh, sort of empty, victorious arrogance. Well, number one, peace settlements usually emerge when there is exhaustion on the battlefield. And as a consequence, I think we need to continue giving the Ukrainians the support that they need to push back against the Russians. I doubt that the Ukrainians would be able to stop Russia from taking a larger bite out of eastern Ukraine. That seems to be what they're doing right now. And then we may well end up in something that looks like a frozen conflict, where there is no formal peace settlement, in part because... Zelensky, given what destruction his country has been subjected to, is not in a position, and nor is it, does he find it uh, desirable to make some sort of peace deal where he says, yes, we settle with neutrality. Yes, we recognize Crimea as part of Russia. I don't think he's going to go down that road, nor do I think that the U.S. or any other ally should make decisions over the head of the Ukrainians. This is their country. We need to follow Ukraine's lead as they try to bring this conflict to an end while making sure that they have what they need to defend themselves. And then assuming this ends in a new frozen conflict, that's when the hard work begins of deciding, do we deal with Putin? Do we bring some of the sanctions down? Can we work with him on arms control agreements? Are we gonna prosecute him for war crimes? There are very tough decisions ahead, but I do think we need to keep in mind, Andrew, that we are in a globalized world, which for the first time in history will be interdependent, tethered together, but without a clear captain at the helm. And that's because since globalization began in the 19th century, it has generally been run either out of London or Washington. We're now moving into a world in which China will soon have the world's largest economy, in which two thirds of the world already trades more with China than with the United States. We're gonna need to figure out how to provide global governance in that kind of multipolar world. And America can't be the honest broker in this piece, can it? I mean, Russia uh, will, demand, I would assume, that the Chinese and perhaps even the Germans are involved? Well, you know, it's interesting that as we speak, if you say who's trying to play the role of broker, it's been the Israeli prime minister. 
It's been the Turkish president. It's not been the big powers that you would think, although the Austrian chancellor did go, the the uh, the French well, president. Austria is hardly a great power, Charles. Right. Okay, that's true. I was I was trying to be nice to the Austrians. The French president has been talking to to Mr. Putin, but in the end of the day, there will need to be a dialogue that brings the key players to the table, including the United States, the European Union, and Russia. When does that happen? How do we get there? I think we won't know until the fighting begins to end, hopefully sooner rather than later. But unfortunately, I, this, could, this could drag on for, for quite some time, given that Russia seems to be resupplying, regrouping, and getting ready for a new offensive in eastern Ukraine. Do we need to give up, though, Charles, on thinking that there's going to be some revolution or rebellion or crack in the in the in 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 the Putin oligarchy? Is this something that's slightly delusional, very much an example of American isolationism that good will triumph over evil somehow, and that's likely to happen in Russia? I I don't think we should give up on it. I would say it's conceivable. And that's because Putin has made a big boo-boo here, right? Putin is someone who I always thought to be tough, repressive, aggressive, expansionist, but pretty smart. He ran low risks and he took uh, absor absorbed low costs. Abkhazia, South Ossetia in Georgia, Crimea and Donbass in Ukraine relatively small intervention in Syria, in Libya, Nagorno-Karabakh. Going into Ukraine to try to topple the government and take over the country is big risk, high cost, and it's reckless. And I think the fact that it has gone so poorly is certainly causing pushback among Russian elites, probably among those right around Putin. Why? because they're seeing their yachts be prepossessed. They're seeing their apartments in London and Antalya be expropriated. They're not happy about this. So yes, there could be a peeling away of the inner circle from Mr. Putin. Am I expecting it? No. Can we count on it? No. The most likely outcome is that he's gonna be in power for a long time to come. But let's wait and see. Who knows how this is going to play out? Well, I think Charles Kupchan is definitely right. It's time for America to get real. And who better to help it get real than Charles himself? Congratulations, Charles, on your controversial op-ed. It was an important one uh, alongside your book, Isolationism. Still a very relevant read in, in the age where America's still trying to figure out what it is in the, in the early 21st century world. What else should people be reading, Charles, in addition to your op-eds and books in uh, mid-April 2022? Well, I, I would say that given the combination of this ongoing pandemic and the war in Ukraine and rising gas prices, fiction is more important than ever to keep us sane. We all need to check out from time to time. Uh, I've read a couple of books in, in the last few months by an author named Tom McNeil that I liked a lot. One was called To Be Sung Underwater and the other Good Night Nebraska. They're set in, in middle America. They're about relationships and American families. And I found them quite a good read and very insightful about 
humanity. Uh, the other book I'm going to put out there, which I have not read yet, but it's on my desk, is a book by a friend of mine at Cambridge University in the UK named Isa Zarakal. And it's called Before the West, The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Orders. And I think that's a very interesting right. topic because I think Eastern orders are going to matter more than they used to. That is to say, I think we're headed into a world that's going to be very hybrid, not dominated by the West as it's been for the last several hundred years. For those of us who, who uh, aspire to think broadly about global affairs, I think it behooves us to know more about how those in the East think about world order. That would probably make us better able to figure out what this next world is going to look like. You'll have to get them on the show. You'll have to give me an introduction. Finally, Charles Kupchan, the author of uh, Isolationism and one of America's most hard-headed liberals, shall we say. Uh, Charles, who's who runs the world in um, uh, on, on the 15th of April 2022? Who's in charge? That is a that is a very easy, easy question for me to answer, Andrew. Thank you for throwing me a softball. The answer is no one. Uh, and I'll I'll give a shout out to the book that I wrote before isolationism. It was called No One's World. Because I think we're headed into an era in which the US won't call the shots, China will not call the shots, power will be broadly diffused. It's interesting to me, and we didn't touch on this in our conversation yet, much of the world is sitting on the fence. They're not siding with Russia, nor are they taking on Russia. Israel, India, Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia, many countries are waiting and watching. That to me is an indication that they think that we are in fact headed toward no one's world. They're keeping their powder dry because they're not sure that they want to put all their marbles in one basket in this moment of great international fluidity. My final comment, and this will bring us back to where we started, I still am a, 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 an exceptionalist in the sense that I think history over time bends in the right direction. I think that over time, but I, and here I'm talking about centuries, not years or decades, we will see more liberty. We will see more democracy. We just need to be patient and determined because when we rush it, we blow it. <laughs>